0: Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or
1: app. All right, let's begin in prayer this evening as we launch our curriculum year with a prayer uh, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ against all those who attack the church. Blessed is our God at all times, well, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord, God of powers, O God of our salvation, O God who alone worketh wonders, do thou look down with mercy and compassion on thy humble servants, and out of love for mankind, hearken and have mercy on us. For behold, our enemies have gathered together against us in order to destroy us and despoil all holy things. But thou who knowest all things, understand that they have risen against us unrighteously, and that we will not be able to oppose their multitudes unless thou showest thy help to us. Therefore, We who are sinful and unworthy pray unto thee in repentance and with tears. Help us, O God, our Savior, and deliver us for the sake of the glory of thy name, that our enemies not say their God has forsaken them, and there is no one to deliver and save them. But let every nation understand that thou art our God, and we are thy people, always protected under thy dominion. Rise up to our help and set To not the evil counsels purposed against us by the evil ones. Judge them that affront us and defeat them that war against us, and turn their impious boldness into fear and flight. But grant unto us hope in thee and thy great boldness and the courage to drive onward. And unto them that thou hast judged to lay down their lives for faith and country, forgive them their trespasses. And in the day of thy righteous reckoning, grant unto them incorruptible crowns. For thou art the help and victory and salvation of them that put their hope in thee. And unto thee do we render glory to the eternal Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peter, I'll turn it over to you to introduce our speaker this evening.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much, Father. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers. Christopher Check holds a degree in English literature from Rice University. He served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the United States Marine Corps, before serving for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development and was named president in 2015. His writings have appeared in numerous Catholic and secular outlets, and he has addressed audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. In their spare time, he and his family run a show kennel called Top Meadow Cavaliers, named for G.K. Chesterton's Beaconsfield Estate, where they show and breed Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, the famed companions of the Stuart Kings. We're so pleased that he is returning to the ICC to open our new curriculum year. Please join me in welcoming back Christopher Cech.
3: Welcome, Chris. Good to have you with us all right, well, it's a delight to be back uh, with the Institute and to be in the company of, uh, of good Catholics because we need the inspiration that these events provide for us, particularly in this time. Cardinal Newman noted about 100 years ago that people in all periods throughout history are tempted to imagine that the time they live in is especially wicked. But he said that the modern world has a unique and terrible defect that sets it apart from history unbelief. Tonight, we're going to look at an event in history and also a poem uh, that reminds us of the Christian West's struggle against Islam. And It's not my purpose to suppress your hope, but I have to say that uh, the virile Catholic Europe that stood courageously in the path of the Ottoman assault in the 16th century, it doesn't exist today. Italians and Spaniards, who are the heroes of tonight's story, have the lowest birth rates in Europe because of this act of self-loathing. You know, they're contracepting themselves out of existence. And we have similar self-loathing here in California with our, our, uh, our, our war on Junipero Serra, the father of our state, and, and contracepting themselves out of existence, even as they open their borders to the enemies of Jesus Christ. And how do we explain this? Well, it's unbelief right? Even pagans want their lines to continue. So I don't know what forms the war with Islam will take in the future, but this much I do know, there is no way for the West to seriously engage an adversary such as Islam unless we are the Christian West. So it falls to us, our children, as Catholics, unapologetically devoted to the truth, to prepare ourselves to shoulder The lion's share of the fight the sacraments the intercession of our blessed mother the rosary these are your chief weapons and i hope that this evening's story will fire your heart a little bit as well now when father and i did the radio uh at the end of last week one of the questions he put to me was uh, because mary of course is, is is the hero of this story and this is a military victory and should we really properly be thinking of our lady in this sense of military conquest. And we absolutely should, and I pointed out to Father, and as many of you know, there are three occasions on the liturgical calendar that are Marian feasts that also celebrate military victories. Uh, The Holy Name of Mary on September 12th, the victory at Vienna under John Sobieski, the great Polish warrior. Um, Our Lady Help of Christians, uh, the final defeat of Napoleon, is celebrated on the liturgical calendar when Pius Seventh returns triumphant to Rome. And then the one that we're going to talk about tonight, Our Lady of Victory, or now we call Our Lady of the Rosary, which celebrates this great victory. And all of these events are prefigured for us in the Song of Songs. So as Father said on the radio, if you don't know scripture, right, you're not going to know history. Who is she that cometh forth as the morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in array. So it's no wonder that Crusaders from the 11th century Jerusalem to the 18th century Vendée have put themselves under the special protection of Our Lady and her intercession preserved the Holy League at Lepanto. And we'll come to that, we're getting a little bit ahead. Let's start the story uh, in 612 AD. A social outcast named Muhammad finds new popularity by inventing a new religion. Now. Muhammad is not a fool. He doesn't invent Islam out of whole cloth, but it's cobbled together out of some Jewish mythology here, a little heathen Araby there, and there are bits and pieces of the gospel. The new religion is custom made for people whose chief joys are fighting and carnal pleasure, and a life of the former spent in the service of spreading this new religion is rewarded by an eternity of the latter. And so, needless to say, this religion caught on among the sons of the desert. And if we fast forward a thousand years, Islam is the driving force behind the Ottoman Empire. And the Turks, who did not begin, the Seljuk Turks who come down from the steppes in the 10th century, 9th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, uh, they're not Muslims, but they uh, uh, they take the religion of the people that they conquer, and in some ways they're just they're better and more aggressive and more fervent uh, Muslims than are Arabs, and they find Islam appealing for the same reasons the Arabs did. And so, October 1564, the viziers of the divan of the Ottoman Empire assemble to urge their sultan. To prepare for war. And they say to him, many more difficult victories have fallen uh, uh, to your scimitar than the capture of a handful of men on a tiny little island that's not well fortified. Now, they're flattering him, but their words are no less true. If we look at this map, we can see that during the five-decade reign of Solomon the Magnificent, the Ottoman Empire grows to its glory, um, encompassing the Caucasus, the Balkans, Anatolia, the Middle East, North Africa. Suleiman had conquered Aden, Algiers, Baghdad, Belgrade, Budapest, Rhodes, Temesvar, And his war galleys terrorized not only the Mediterranean Sea, but the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf as well. He had suffered one defeat, 1529, the gates of Vienna. Now, the tiny little islands that the Sultan's counselors now wanted their Lord to invest was called Malta, right? And if the island of Malta were put anywhere other than where God put it, it would have remained unknown to history. Uh, It's an infertile, dusty rock. There are very few natural springs. Uh, the Maltese at the time really had to collect their drinking water in large clay urns when it rained. The island could sustain really only a very small population. But in the 16th century Mediterranean world, Malta guarded the sea passage from the Islamic East to the Christian West. And from its excellent natural harbor, the galleys of the Knights of St. John could sail forth and disrupt the logistical lines of any Turkish assault on Italy. And if you will, they could practice their own version of what I would call Christian piracy. They could board and seize Turkish merchantmen bringing goods from the south of France or from Venice to be hawked in the markets of Constantinople. And in fact, the matrons of uh, Soliman's harem nagged the sultan because these to 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 take Malta because these ladies accumulated extraordinary wealth, speculating in glass and other Venetian luxuries. Now Soliman was a strategic thinker. He obviously had bigger things on his mind than pleasing, you know, a palace full of harem girl. He knew that the magnificent natural harbors of Malta in Turkish possession would give him the forward base without equal from which to continue his raids on the coast of Italy. Okay, so we're we're, um, we're on Malta and the Sultan is intending to invest Malta because uh, he knows that with the magnificent natural harbors of Malta in his possession, uh, that the island will serve as a, uh, a point of departure um, uh, without equal for terrorizing, for continuing his wars on, the, on, on Western Europe. But in particular, he is interested in um, recapturing Sicily. So in the early part of the uh, 7th century, Arabs took Sicily, and then it was very slowly recaptured by Normans and by Spaniards. He's also interested in uh, bringing Venice to heel. The two powers that are vying for control of the Mediterranean at this time in history are uh, Venice and, and, and the Ottoman Empire, the great sea power of Venice and the Ottoman Empire. As I said, an invasion of Sicily would not be out of question, and also aid to the Moriscos. The Moriscos were converts, Moorish converts uh, who never really converted in Spain, and then within a couple of years of this event are going to be in full scale rebellion against Philip II, the King of Spain. But Soliman's dream, the dream that all the Turks uh, had, that they would toast with sherbet before they would go on any. Campaign was to the Red Apple, the conquest of the Red Apple, Rome. And at this moment in history, what is under construction? St. Peter's Basilica. And there's still time to fix a crescent on top of that dome, even then under construction, just as they had done to Constantinople's Hagia Sophia just uh, a century or so before. Malta was a stepping stone to Rome. Now, the sultan had led his army on no fewer than 12 major campaigns, uh, but this time his age would keep him home. The Turks sailed for Malta the following spring, and on May 18, 1565, their fleet was spotted offshore. That night, Jean de la Valette, the 71-year-old grand Master of the Knights of St. John, led his warriors into the chapel where they confessed, and they assisted at the holy sacrifice of the mass. And this is what he said to them. A formidable army composed of audacious barbarians is descending on this island. These persons, my brothers, are the enemies of Jesus Christ. Today, it is a question of the defense of our faith. Are the gospels to be superseded by the Quran? God on this occasion demands of us our lives already vowed to his service. Happy will be those who first consummate this sacrifice. Now, Many of Vallet's 700 knights and their men-at-arms did consummate that sacrifice. But while all of Europe stood idly by expecting the island fortress to fall, the knights held their island against an Ottoman army of something like 40,000, including 6,500 of the sultan's elite janissaries. Three-quarters of the Turkish army were killed over the four-month siege. And as the Ottoman survivors turned and straggled back to Constantinople, a sense began to spread throughout Europe that the Sultan's armies were not so invincible after all. The sense in Constantinople was rage. I see that it is only in my own hand that my sword is invincible, exploded the Sultan. And by May of the following year, he was leading an army of 300,000 men across the plains of Hungary bound for Vienna. The Hungarian Count uh, of Sigetvar, an eastern, uh, on the eastern frontier of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, led a successful raid on the Ottoman supply trains. Suleiman wheels his massive army around, and he says, I'm going to wipe Sigetvar off the map. Turkish engineers prepared flotillas and bridges to span the Drava and the Danube rivers to lay siege to Sigivar. And to greet the sultan and to inspire his men, who were outnumbered 50 to 1, Count Miklos Rinyi raised a large crucifix over his battlements, and he fired his cannons in defiance. And both armies' thoughts turned to the previous year's contest on Malta. The Zrinyi knew that with a Hungary infested with Protestantism, hope of relief was even more faint than that entertained by the Knights of Malta. For nearly a month, wave after wave of Turkish infantry were thrown back from the walls. Soliman the Magnificent afforded Zrinyi rule of all of Croatia if he would just yield the city, but the Count had his soul set on another sort of glory. No one shall point his finger at my children in contempt, he answered. When the breaches made by Turkish artillery were too large to defend, the Catholic count assembled his last 600 men. With this sword, he shouted, holding the bejeweled weapon aloft, I earned my first honor and glory. I want to appear with it once more before the eternal throne to hear my judgment. Charging out from the remains of the stronghold, the courageous band was swallowed by a sea of Turks. To the last man, the Hungarian knights died defending the Christian West. The Turks were furious at the losses that their army had suffered. They consoled themselves according to their grisly custom. They slaughtered every Christian civilian who had survived the siege. Now, Solomon the Magnificent did not witness the massacre, for he had died of dysentery in his tent four days prior. Had he survived, however, to see this Ottoman victory on the remote Hungarian frontier, it would have given him no comfort. The capture of Zygutvar was altogether pyrrhic. The Ottoman army had exhausted itself in the siege, and was in no condition to carry on the campaign. Though all dead, Kandrini and his heroic band were the true victors. Back in Constantinople, Suleiman's son ascended the throne by the usual Ottoman method. And this was a complex harem intrigue uh, designed to bump off all of his worthier brothers. Unlike every previous sultan, Selim II, nicknamed the sot, uh, or the drunk, right, had little interest in warfare. His enthusiasms were wine, uh, his extraordinarily deviant sexual appetite, uh, wine, poetry, though he was not the poet that his father was, and wine. But He sensed that if he didn't have a decisive victory that this mighty empire that his father had left him was going to face eclipse. He decided he would invade the Venetian held Cyprus where half the population were Greek Orthodox serfs laboring under the exacting rule of their Venetian Roman Catholic masters. And he felt they would offer little resistance to an Ottoman takeover. Further, Cyprus, goes the story, was the source of his favorite vintage. Now, had Selim known how half-hearted was Venice herself about defending the island, he would have been all the more enthusiastic. The Venetian Senate, when they found out that the Turks had invaded Cyprus, they voted by a very small margin, 220 to 199 to defend the island. The Turks rolled through Cyprus. After a 46-day siege, the capital city of Nicosia fell, September 9, 1570. The 500 Venetians of the garrison surrendered on terms, but once the gates were opened, the Turks rushed in and slaughtered them all. Then the Turks set on the civilian population something like 20,000 were massacred, some in such bizarre ways that those who were merely put to the sword were lucky. Every house was plundered. Mothers, to protect their daughters from rape, stabbed them and them, them themselves or threw themselves from the rooftops. 2,000 of the prettier boys and girls were gathered and shipped off as sexual provender for the slave markets in Constantinople. Soon the news reached Western Europe that only the port city of Famagusta on the eastern coast of the island held out. Spain and the Italian republics began to realize that only a united front would stop the continued assault of the Ottoman Empire. And had the matter of such an alliance been left to the rulers of these various states, then St. Peter's Basilica might well have become a mosque but God intervened and sent one of history's great popes St Pius V who declared I am taking up arms against the Turks but the only thing that can help me is the prayers of priests of pure life Pius V was an aged Dominican priest his name was Michael Gissieri and when he ascended the chair of Peter he faced two foes Protestantism And Islam, this man was up to the task. He had served as the Grand Inquisitor, and the austerity of his private mortifications contrasted with the lifestyles pursued by his uh, Renaissance predecessors. During his six-year reign, he promulgated the Council of Trent, he published the works of Thomas Aquinas, he issued the Roman Catechism, he issued the New Missal, the very missile today that's used in the Latin mass. He issued a new breviary. He created 21 Cardinals. He excommunicated Queen Elizabeth. And aided by St. Charles Borromeo, Pope Pius V led the reform of the clergy and the episcopacy that had grown soft and degenerate. In a papacy of great moments, One of the greatest came on March 7, 1571, the feast of his fellow Dominican, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the old calendar. At the Dominican Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome, Pope Pius V formed the Holy League. Genoa, the Papal States, the Kingdom of Spain, put aside their jealousies and pledged to assemble a fleet capable of confronting the Sultan's war galleys before the east coast of Italy became the front line in the war between Christianity and Islam. The day was not a total triumph. Venice refused to join. Recall, Venice is at open war with the Turks over Cyprus, but the Venetians never failed to consider their economy. They might lose Cyprus, but A fast peace afterwards would lead to the resumption of normal trade relations with the Turks. And moreover, the loss of the Venetian fleet in an all-out battle with the sultan's war galleys would be a disaster for a state altogether dependent on seaborne commerce. I mean, we just say here, we, we think of Venice as, you know, a cool place that we go visit with gondoliers singing love songs. Venice owned vast portions of the Mediterranean world at this time. From the Pope's perspective, the Venetians had traded their birthright as Christians for a mess of pottage. Walking back across the Tiber, the old friar wept for the future of Christendom, for he knew that without the war galleys of Venice, there was no hope of mounting a fleet sufficient to face the Turk. The rest of Europe ignored Pius's call for a new crusade. The Queen of England, the bastard Queen of England, Elizabeth I, was in open rebellion against Rome. She was too busy confiscating Holy Mother Church's monasteries to enrich her cronies and putting to sword and stake English defenders of the Holy Mass to be of any help. In the years to come, Elizabeth would... Through her spy master, Walsingham, actively enlists the aid of the Turks in her wars against Spain. Pius wrote a personal letter to Charles IX of France, the Valois, king of France, asking his kingdom's aid. But Charles's mother, history's real-life Lady Macbeth, Catherine de' Medici, was calling the shots in France, and Charles wrote back, no. France, in fact, had openly traded with the Turks for years, and as recently as 1569, so just two years prior, drawn up an extensive commercial treaty with the Turks brokered by a powerful Jewish banker named Joseph Mikas. The language of the treaty was Hebrew. For years, the French had allowed Turkish ships to harbor in Toulon, and the oars that rowed Turkish galleys came from Marseille. The cannons that brought down the walls of Ziegavar were of French design. Further, with Venice at war with Constantinople, markets that were once filled by Venetian goods were now what? Open to France. I'm I'm bashing on France here, but redeeming, I've got my Florida Lee tie on, redeeming France from utter disgrace were the Knights of St. John of Malta ever eager to do battle with Islam. They sent their galleys to join the Holy League. The Pope prayed for Venice to answer her higher call. Meanwhile, a new breed of fiery priests, led by such stirring preachers as San Francisco Borgia, the superior general of the Jesuits, inspired the hearts of Christian Europeans throughout the Mediterranean with their sermons against Islam. Enough Venetians must have been listening, and on May 25th, So a little less than two months later, Venice joined the Holy League. Not only did this struggle for Cyprus continue, but African corsairs in the service of the sultan were raiding off the Venetian coast within cannon shot of the Basilica San Marco. There was an explosion and a fire in the famous Venetian arsenal. To this day, this explosion is unsolved, but nonetheless, it further focused the Venetian priorities. By fits and starts, and not without hesitation and quarreling on the part of a few of the principal players, the fleet of the Holy League was forming. The man in whom there was not a shred of hesitation was the one chosen by Pius V to serve as captain general of the Holy League, Don John of Austria. Don John of Austria was the illegitimate son of the late Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and half-brother to Philip King of Spain. Taking the young, the young commander had distinguished himself in combat against the Barbary Corsairs and in the Morisco Rebellion in Spain, a campaign during which he demonstrated his capacity for swift violence when the threat called for it, but also restraint. When charity demanded it, Don John was a great horseman. He was a great swordsman. And he was a great dancer. And he had charm and wit and good looks in abundance. And he was, to say the least, popular among the ladies at court. Since childhood, he had cultivated a deep devotion to the Blessed Virgin. He spoke Latin, French, Italian, and Spanish. He kept a pet marmoset and a pet lion cub that slept at the foot of his bed. He was 24 years old. Taking the young warrior by the shoulders, Pius V looked Don John of Austria in the eye, and he declared, the Turks, swollen by their victories, will wish to take on our fleet, and God, I have the pious presentiment, will give us victory. Charles V gave you life. I will give you honor and greatness. Go and seek them out. As Don John was making his way in late summer of 1571 to the harbor at Messina to take command of his fleet, the situation on Cyprus grew more desperate. The Venetian colonists had claimed the lives of some 50,000 Turks with their intrepid. Defense of Famagusta. but when all their supplies and all their gunpowder were exhausted, and when they had eaten their last horse, their shrewd governor, a man named Marc Antonio Bragadino, sent a message to the Turkish commander, a man named Lala Mustafa asking for terms. The Turks agreed to give the remaining Venetian soldiers passage to Crete on fourteen Turkish galleys in exchange for surrender of the city. They agreed that the Greek Cypriots could retain their property and their religion. On August 4, 1571, Marc Antonio Bragadino with a small entourage, including several young boys serving as pages, met with Lala Mustafa and his advisor in the Turkish general's tent. Mustafa letrously demanded Bragadino's page, a man named Antonio Quirini, as a hostage for the 14 galleys. Bragadino calmly refused. He and his men were pushed out of the tent by Mustafa's guards. Bragadino was bound and forced to watch as his attendants were hacked to pieces. The boys were let off in chains. Three times the Turks took the Venetian governor's neck and put it on the executioner's block, and three times they lifted it off. Instead of his head, they cut off his nose and his ears. To prevent his bleeding to death, they cauterized the wounds with hot iron. The Venetian soldiers of the garrison, unaware that Mustafa had broken the terms, began their march down to the galleys expecting passage to Crete. Once aboard, the Venetians were set upon by Turks who stripped them of their clothes and chained them to the oars. From their benches, they now witnessed the horrifying ordeal to which the Turks now subjected their governor. First, the Turks fitted Bragadino with a harness and a bridle, and they led him around the Turkish camp on his hands and knees. Slung across his back were ass panniers filled with dung. Each time he passed Lala Mustafa's tent, he was forced to kiss the ground. Next, he was strung up in, ch- in chains and hoisted over a galley's bar and left to hang in the hot August sun. Finally, the courageous governor was dragged into the city square and lashed to the pillory where the Turks flayed him alive. Witnesses said they heard him whispering a Latin prayer. He died when the executioner's knife reached the height of his navel. The diabolical orgy did not end there. Mustafa had the governor's skin stuffed. He hoisted it up the mast of his galley, and he joined the Ottoman fleet heading west. As Marc Antonio Bragadino was losing his life to Turkish monsters, Don John was inspecting his ships. Of the 206 galleys and 76 smaller boats that comprised the Holy League, more than half came from Venice. The next biggest contingent came from Spain. This included galleys from Sicily, the Kingdom of Naples, Portugal, and Genoa. The ones that came from Genoa were owned by the Genovese soldier of fortune, Admiral John Andrea Doria. Doria was renting his services and the use of his ships to Philip at about 30% higher than what Philip paid to run his own galleys. And he was also lending the Spanish king the money at 14%. The balance of the galleys came from the Holy See. When Don John took charge of his fleet, he promptly forbade women from coming aboard the galleys. He declared that blasphemy among the crews would be punished by death. The whole fleet followed his example, and they made a three-day fast. Though he had not yet learned of the fate of Famagusta, Don John knew that the Ottoman fleet was sailing west. He could only guess. He would have been right that the young Ottoman admiral, a man named Muzan Ali Pasha, had explicit orders from Selim II to engage the Christians in a pitched battle. After a sortie as far north as the Gulf of Previsa, the Ottoman fleet, comprising some 230 galleys and some 70 smaller craft, including the swift shallow draft galleots of the African Corsairs, harbored in the Bay of Lepanto on the north side of the Gulf of Petras. By September 28, the Holy League had made its way across the Adriatic Sea and was anchored between the west coast of Greece and the island of Corfu. By this time, The news of the death of Marcantonio Bragadino had reached the Holy League and the Venetians are especially ready to settle the score. Don John reminded all of his fleet that the battle they would soon face was as much spiritual as physical. Pius V had granted a plenary indulgence to the soldiers and crews of the Holy League, priests of the great orders, Capuchins, Franciscans, Dominicans, Theatines, Jesuits, were stationed on the decks of the Holy League's galleys offering mass, hearing confessions. Now, many of the men who rode the Christian galleys were criminals, probably most. So thieves, debtors, maybe maybe men who had killed their wives, lovers. Don John ordered them all unchained and he issued them each a weapon, promising them their freedom if they fought bravely. He then issued to every man in his fleet a weapon more powerful than anything in the Turkish arsenal, one of these, a rosary. On the eve of the battle, the men of the Holy League prepared their souls by falling to their knees on the decks of their galleys and praying The rosary back in Rome and up and down the Italian peninsula at the behest of Pius V, the churches were filled with the faithful telling their beads. In heaven, the Blessed Mother, her immaculate heart aflame, was listening. In the quiet of the night, Don John met with his admirals on the deck of his flagship, Re'al, to review once more the order of battle. He had divided his fleet into four squadrons of some 60 ships each. Commanding the squadron on the left flank was a Venetian warrior named Augustine Barbarigo. The center squadron was commanded by Don John, assisted on either side by his vice admirals, the Roman, Mark Antonio Colonna, and the Venetian, Sebastian Veniero directly behind the center squadron don john stationed the reserve squadron commanded by the Spaniard don alvaro de bazan the marquis of santa cruz don alvaro de bazan the marquis of santa cruz was spain's greatest naval commander the right squadron was under the command of the genovese soldier of fortune gian andrea doria a raid for battle the mighty League, the mighty armada of the Holy League looked like nothing if not a Latin cross. Now, John Andrea Doria, whatever we might say about his mercenary motives, had been the source of some very valuable counsel. Cut off the spars on the prows of the fleet's galleys, he recommended to John. John. This will permit the centerline bow cannons to depress. Further, So look just right behind where that galley spar is. You can see there are, in this case, five cannons right there mounted on the bow. So by removing this uh, spar from the field of fire of these of these centerline cannons, it allowed them to depress further and fire the rounds at the waterline of the enemy hulls. galleys uh, which are a kind of a funny hybrid you see they're a rowing and a sailing vessel uh very difficult to pilot but galleys had been equipped with bow spars and rams going all the way or all the way back to the days of Salamis right in the punic wars during the punic wars the ram would have been at the waterline the idea being to ram the enemy hull and then back off leaving the enemy ship to founder in the water. In the 16th century, and this image is very useful, you can see that the oars are supported, but the weight of the oars is supported by an outrigger device called a telaro. And so in 16th century galley warfare, the object was to Uh, kind of approach at an angle and give a a glancing blow to uh, disable that Tilaro device uh, and render the uh, render the galley um, useless in the water. Uh, This is a signal moment military historians like to point out heralding the age of gunpowder. Now, John Andrea Doria also advised taking the Leeds' six Galleuses and putting them in the van, two before each of the forward squadrons. A Galleus was not a war vessel of itself. It was a multi decked merchant galley that had been at about a, a one and a half times the size of an ordinary war galley that had been outfitted with cannons not only at the bow and the stern, but also. On the port and starboard sides, so where an ordinary galley was vulnerable, galleys packed heavy firepower. Uh, Don John increased the lethality of the galley of the galleasses by packing the decks with Spanish arquebusiers An arquebus is is a, is about the earliest handheld gun, not a rifle, but a handheld gun. Um, from, uh, from, from the 16th century. These galleuses were slow. They had to be towed into place, uh, at, at, in position at the front of the van. It's likely that the southernmost squadron, once the battle starts, the galleuses are not in place. There's some debate. Um, but nonetheless, they pro- po- provide a powerful shock at the start of the battle. Now, John andrea Doria was an admiral, but he was also a ship owner. And he looked at Don John and he raised his eyebrows. Remember, they're all gathered there in the quiet of the night. And he opens his palm and he says, Your Grace, there's still time to avoid a pitched battle. Bear in mind, the young Captain General stood surrounded by men older and with greater seafaring and military experience than he. Sebastian Veniero was more than three times his age. He was 76 years old. So silence fills the small stateroom as these men wait to hear Don John's response. And he waits, he catches their eyes, each one of them, as he looks around and then he says, gentlemen, The time for council has passed. Now is the time for war. It was. In the dawn's mist of October 7, 1571, the Holy League rode down the west coast of Greece and turned east into the Gulf of Patras. When the morning mist cleared, the Christians, rowing directly against the wind, saw the squadrons of the larger Ottoman fleet arrayed like a crescent and stretched from shore to shore, bearing down on them under full sail. As the fleets grew closer, the Christians could hear the gongs and the cymbals and the drums and the cries of the Turks. The men of the Holy League silently pulled at their oars. The soldiers stood on the decks in silent prayer. Priests marched up and down the decks, holding aloft large crucifixes, exhorting the men to be brave, hearing final confessions. And then the Blessed Virgin intervened. The wind shifted 180 degrees. The Ottomans struck their sails, and the tens of thousands of Christian galley slaves who rowed the Turkish boats were whipped up from under their benches. The sails of the Holy League were filled with the divine breath, driving them into battle. Don John knelt for a final prayer on the prow of Real, and he stood up and he gave the order for the Holy League's battle standard, a gift from Pius V, to be unfurled. Christians up and down the battle line. Watched as the giant blue banner bearing an image of our Lord crucified strained in the wind. They let forth a cheer of confidence in their young commander and hope in their God. At midday, the fleets closed and engaged. The first fighting began along the Holy League's left flank, where many of the smaller, swifter Turkish galleys were able to maneuver around Augustine Barbarigo's inshore flank. The Venetian admiral responded with a near impossibility. He pivoted his entire squadron, 54 ships counterclockwise, and he began to pin the Turkish right flank commanded by Mehmet Scirocco against, you see, the north shore there of the Gulf of Patras. Gaps formed in Barbarigo's line. The Ottoman galleys broke into the intervals. Galley pu- pulled up along galley the slaughter brought on by cannon, musket ball, and arrow was horrific. But in time, the Venetians prevailed. Barbarigo took an arrow to the eye. But before he died, he learned of the death of Mohammed, Mohammed Shirako and the crushing defeat of the Turkish right line. In the center of the battle, breaking all conventions of naval warfare, the, imposed, the uh, opposing flagships engaged. Don John's real with Muzunzadi Ali Pasha's sultana. Two times, Spanish infantry boarded and drove the sultan's janissaries back to the mass. And twice, they were driven back to the real by Ottoman reinforcements. Don John led the third charge across the sultana's bloody deck. He was wounded in the leg, but Ali Pasha took a musket ball to the forehead and one of Re'al's freed convicts lopped off the head of the Turkish admiral and he held it aloft on the pike. The Muslim sacred banner with the name of Allah stitched 28,900 times, which Islamic tradition held was carried in battle by the prophet, was captured by the Christians. Terror struck the Turks, the slaughter began, bodies and limbs, Quivered on the scarlet deck, the sea ran red. But the fight was far from won. On the Holy League's southernmost flank, on the right flank, commanded by John Andrea Doria, John Andrea Doria was forced to increase the interval between his galleys to keep his line abreast from being flanked uh, on the southern side against uh, Ulik Ali. Uh, when the space between Doria's squadron and Don John's squadron grew large enough, Ulik Ali sent his Corsairs, so these swift, smaller vessels through the gap, and they enveloped from behind the galleys of Don John's squadron. And I remember I told you, Don Alvaro de Bazan, great, uh, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, Spain's greatest naval commander, commanding the Holy League in, in the reserve squadron, 35 galleys, he is waiting and he's reading the battle, And he's kept his ships out of the fray, waiting for the moment when he's most at need. And now he enters the fight, rescuing the center of the Holy League from the Turkish vessels that had been surrounded. And then he turns his squadron south to aid the outmanned Doria. The fighting lasted for five hours. The sides were evenly matched and both were well led. But the divine favored the Christians. And once the battle turned in their favor, it became a total rout. By one count, all but 13 of the Turkish galleys were captured or sunk. Over 30,000 Turks were slain. It's not until the First World War that we see so much carnage in one day's fighting. In the aftermath of the battle, the Christians gave no quarter. They were sure, especially to kill helmsmen, galley captains, archers, janissaries. Why? Well, the sultan could rebuild ships. But as I said, a galley is a difficult thing to pilot. And without the experts to operate them, it would be years before the sultan would be able to put a formidable fleet to sea. The news of the victory made its way back to Rome, but the pope was already rejoicing. On the day of the battle, Pius V had been consulting with his cardinals at the Dominican Basilica of Santa Sabina on the Aventine Hill. He paused In the midst of their deliberations to look out the window and up in the sky our lord and our lady favored him with a vision of the victory and he turned to his cardinals and he said let us fall on our knees in thanksgiving to god for he has given our fleet a great victory the stories of that glorious day would fill a book a young contemporary of Don John's, Miguel Cervantes, fought with abandon and he lost part of his left hand to a Turkish musket ball. He kept all of his right to one day, pen Spain's greatest novel, Don Quixote. At one point in the battle, Don John's marmoset was seen picking up Turkish grenades and throwing them overboard before they could explode on another galley a soldier of the holy league his soul was torn with despair thinking that the muslims were going to be victorious he took his own sword to the ship's crucifix the blade when it touched the crucifix instantly shattered and many years later an attempt to reforge the sword was made But the moment the new blade was pulled from the fire, it immediately fell to pieces. The crucifix on board Don John's flagship, the Real, uh, the corpus twisted itself to dodge a Turkish cannonball. You can see it in the first side chapel on the right in the medieval cathedral in Barcelona. And of interest to American Catholics is an image displayed in the Doria family church in the small mountain town of San Stefano, north of Genoa. Jean Andrea Doria carried this gift from the king of Spain on his galley. Exactly 40 years before the Battle of La Panta, the Blessed Virgin appeared to a peasant leaving a miraculous image of herself on his smock. The Bishop of the region immediately commissioned an artist to paint five copies of the image and he touched each one to the original. Our Lady of Guadalupe was present at the Battle of Lepanto. Now that is some American Catholic history. I want to say thank
1: you to Jesus and the Virgin Mary. (laughs) <laughs> not only for the victory at lepanto but for the restoration of your of your presence okay. with us tonight. I'm going to ask the first question, Chris. If this battle had not been won for christ, then what?
3: Well, if it, if the battle had gone the other way, uh, if the if the holy league had lost, uh, then uh completely unchallenged control of the Mediterranean would have fallen to the Ottoman Empire, to the Turks. Uh, Venice would have no longer been able to um, uh, hold her her own in her contest with uh, with the Turks. And then the consequence of this would be uh, that Islam would have overrun the Italian peninsula. I mean, in fact, These kinds of raids, and it's mentioned in the Chesterton poem that uh, I don't know if we're going to do tonight. I'll I'll do it if you want, Father. But um, but but these kinds of raids have been taking place on the coast of Italy. Well, the Ottomans would have felt all the more emboldened to uh, raid Italy. They would have made their way to Rome and we would see a crescent on the dome of St. Peter's Basilica and not a cross. That was what was at stake in this battle, to be sure.
1: A question coming from Adrian, asking why did the Hungarian Protestants not view Islam as a threat? Or maybe they did, but there's a factor that we don't know. So can you help us understand the the Protestant response to this?
3: Um, Sure. It's important to understand Europe or Christendom, or at this point, divided Christendom in terms of the political map as well. And so when uh, an alliance could be made against uh, a political rival, or in this case, a religious enemy, making an alliance with uh, the Ottomans was not uncommon. Uh, I gave the example of, of Queen Elizabeth, and then also the Calvinists in, the Spanish uh, Netherlands, they wore ber- uh, crescents on their berets as a sign of solidarity with, uh, with, with the port, with the Ottoman Empire. Um, so it is interesting how alliances against, and, and by the way, between or- the, uh, the Orthodox churches in Rome as well, and the way the political map moved, uh, but sure, yeah, that's a threat, but that's also somebody that I can strike a deal with or build a treaty with. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's politics after original sin. That's the short answer.
1: All right. The, uh, the other question came from Rosemary, and then we're going to turn to the poem. Uh, Rosemary Dempsey's is asking, um, she said she had the opportunity to go to Malta and Cyprus. And while at Cyprus, she noted that it was divided, one side Turkish, the other side Greek. Uh, Is this when the island of Cyprus became divided?
3: Uh, It's the beginning of the story. That is absolutely correct. Those particular divisions, and you're going to get a modern historian here who's going to be better at this, but those particular divisions are in the wake of the um, Turkish uh, invasion of the Balkan Peninsula, and and the existing resolution comes in the 20th century uh, when Kamal uh, comes and um, so called modernizes uh, Turkey. A whole other story there. Uh, in the view of millions of Armenians, uh, it wasn't modernized. So, Father Hezekiah, I think what I'll do is I'll, 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 I'll skip over the little bit of explanation that I provide before I do the talk. And if there are questions afterwards, then, and for people who want to hang around, happy to do that. I entirely leave that to you. The narrative of the, the narrative arc of the poem. Trace's Don John begins with the sultan in Constantinople laughing because he's a victorious and then it traces uh the, the 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 arc of Don John uh to the battle through uh the eyes of various onlookers so for example Muhammad in his paradise and Saint Michael on his mountain in France Mont Saint Michel and King Philip, King of Spain, in his closet, not a very flattering portrayal. And Chesterton was an Englishman. So he dives into some of that black legend. Hard to fault him. And, and then uh, and, and 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 then the Pope finally before the tabernacle, praying, all the while we get the progress of Don John headed to the battle. And then, of course, the final scene where the Christian galleys are, the Christian galley slaves are, are, are set, are set free. So Lepanto, GK Chesterton. White founts falling in the courts of the sun, and the sultan of Byzantium is smiling as they run. There is laughter like the fountains in that face of all men feared. It stirs the forest darkness, the darkness of his beard. It curls the blood-red crescent, the crescent of his lips. For the inmost sea of all the earth is shaken with his ships. They have dared the white republics up the capes of Italy. They have dashed the Adriatic round the line of the sea, and the Pope has cast his arms abroad for agony and loss and called the kings of Christendom for swords about the cross. The cold Queen of England is looking in the glass. The shadow of the Valois is yawning at the mass. From evening aisles fantastical rings faint the Spanish gun, and the Lord upon the golden horn is laughing in the sun. Dim drums throbbing in the hills half heard where only on a nameless throne a crownless prince has stirred, where risen from a doubtful seat and half a tainted stall, the last knight of Europe takes weapons from the wall, the last and lingering troubadour to whom the bird has sung, that once went singing southward when all the world was young, in that enormous silence, tiny and unafraid, comes up along a winding road, the noise of the crusade, Strong gongs groaning as the guns boom far. Don John of Austria is going to the war. Stiff flags straining in the night blast cold in the gloom black purple in the glint old gold. Torchlight crimson on the copper kettle drums, then the tuckets, then the trumpets, then the cannon and he comes. Don John laughing in the brave beard curled, spurning of his stirrups like the thrones of all the world, holding his head up as a flag for all the free. Love light of Spain, hurrah, death light of Africa. Don John of Austria is riding to the sea. The hound is in his paradise above the evening star. Don John of Austria is going to the war. He moves a mighty turban on the timeless Hori's knees, his turban that is woven to the sunsets and the seas. He shakes the peacock gardens as he rises from his ease. He strides among the treetops and is taller than the trees. And his voice through all the garden is a thunder sent to bring black Azrael and Ariel and Ammon on the wing, giants and the genii, multiplex of wing and eye, whose strong obedience broke the sky when Solomon was king. They rush in red and purple from the red clouds of the morn, from temples where the yellow gods shut up their eyes in scorn. They rise in green robes roaring from the green hells of the sea where fallen skies and evil hues and eyeless creatures be. On them the sea valves cluster and the gray sea forests swirl, splashed with the splendid sickness, the sickness of the pearl. They swell in sapphire smoke out of the blue cracks of the ground and they gather and they wonder and give worship to Mahound. And he saith, break up the mountains where the hermit folk may hide and sift the red and silver sands lest bone a saint abide and chase the gears, flying night and day, not giving rest. For that which was our trouble comes again out of the West. We have set the seal of Solomon on all things under sun, of knowledge and of sorrow and endurance of things done. But a noise is in the mountains, in the mountains. And I know that voice that shook our palaces 400 years ago. It is he that saith not kismet. It is he that knows not fate. It is Richard. It is Raymond that is Godfrey at the gate. It is he whose loss is laughter when he counts the wager worth. Put down your feet upon him that our peace be on the earth. For he heard drums groaning and he heard guns jar. Don John of Austria is going to the war. Sudden and still, hurrah, bolt from Iberia. Don John of Austria is gone by Alcalar. St. Michael's on his mountain in the sea roads of the North. Don John of Austria's Girton going forth where the gray seas glitter and the sharp tides shift where the sea folk labor and the red sails lift. He shakes his lance of iron. He claps his wings of stone. The noise has gone through Normandy. The noise has gone alone. The North is full of tangled things and texts and aching eyes. And dead is all the innocence of anger and surprise. And Christian killeth Christian in a narrow, dusty room. And Christian dreadeth Christ that hath a newer face of doom. And Christian hateth Mary, that God kissed in Galilee. But Don John of Austria is riding to the sea. Don John calling to the blast and the eclipse, crying with the trumpet, with the trumpet of his lips, trumpet that saith, ha! Domino Gloria, Don John of Austria is shouting to the ships. King Philip's in his closet with the fleece about his neck. Don John of Austria is armed upon the deck. The walls are hung with velvet that is black and soft as sin and little dwarves creep out of it and little dwarves creep in. He holds a crystal file that is colors like the moon. He touches and it tingles and he trembles very soon and his face is as a fungus of a leprous white and gray, like plants in the high houses that are shuttered from the day and death is in the file and the end of noble work. But Don John of Austria has fired upon the Turk. Don John's hunting and his hounds have bade, booms away past Italy the rumor of his raid. Gun upon gun, Ha-ha! Gun upon gun, hurrah! Don, John of Austria, has loosed the cannonade. The Pope was in his chapel before day or battle broke. Don, John of Austria, is hidden in the smoke. The hidden room in man's house where God sits all the year. The secret window whence the world looks small and very dear. He sees as in a mirror on the monstrous twilight sea the crescent of his cruel ships whose name is mystery. They fling great shadows forwards, making cross and castle dark. They veil the plumed lions on the galleys of St. Mark. And above the ships are palaces of brown black bearded chiefs. And below the ships are prisons where with multitudinous griefs, Christian captives, sick and sunless, all a laboring race repines like a race in sunken cities, like a nation in the mines. They are lost like slaves that swat and in the skies of mourning hung, the stairways of the tallest gods when tyranny was young. They are countless, voiceless, hopeless, like those fallen or fleeing on before the high king's horses in the granite of Babylon. And many one grows witless in his quiet room in hell, where a yellow face looks inward through the lattice of his cell and he finds his God forgotten and he seeks no more a sign. But Don John of Austria has burst the battle line. Don John pounding from the slaughter painted poop, purpling all the ocean like a bloody pirate sloop, scarlet running over all the silvers and the gold, breaking of the hatches up and bursting of the holes, Thronging of the thousands up who labor under sea, white for bliss and blind for sun and stunned for liberty. Viva Espana, Domino Gloria. Don John of Austria has set his people free. Cervantes on his galley sets the sword back in the sheath. Don John of Austria rides homeward with a wreath. And he sees across a weary land a straggling road in Spain, up which a lean and foolish knight forever rides in vain. And he smiles, but not his sultan smile and settles back the blade. Don John of Austria rides home from the crusade.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us tonight. And uh, what a beautiful, beautiful poem. Thank you to G.K. Chesterton, of course. Um, And uh, and thank God for preserving us through this, uh, through our event this evening, uh, even when things looked like they were not going to work out so well.
3: Uh, Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Father, It's always an honor.
1: We're going to conclude in prayer together and ask you to pray for all of the members of our ICC family. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ. You who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit upon this, your Institute of Catholic Culture family. Bless our works. Prosper the work of our hands. Guide us in all things we do to the glorification of your holy name. Open the eyes and the mind, the hearts of those who we will minister to in the coming year, that together we might glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray pray for for us.
0: We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.